0: your horror movie podcast that is covering all horror movie franchises, one movie in one episode at a time. Uh, I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, joined once again by my co-host, Jerry Smith.
1: Jerry, how are we doing? I'm doing absolutely great. I'm excited about this. one. you know what's funny is I I, I just noticed that I say that before every episode. You really do. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so silly. But like, honestly, this is an episode that I think after last week's episode, people were like, whoa. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. this was not very positive, No, uh, but I've, I've been looking forward to doing Halloween 2 for a while because I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's one of the most interesting of the sequels. So mm-hmm. this is going to be cool.
0: I unabashedly love this movie. So, which is really funny considering that last week we were both really down on the the uh, original Rob Zombie Halloween, like the initial. So usually you would think, you know, people like the first foray and then everything kind of goes downhill. But I really like this movie a lot. Um, Hmm. It's actually the first movie I ever wrote about uh, for my old site, All Things Horror. Wow. Um, And I really enjoyed it. And I remember, like, you know, reading reviews afterwards being like, oh, I guess I'm so new. I didn't get the memo that you're not allowed to like this movie, um, but it does feel like it's gotten like a reevaluation over the past couple years, as totally all, as all Halloween sequels tend to over time.
1: Mm-hmm. And I also think that it's awesome. That- Speaking on that reevaluation and stuff, I think our guest tonight is the perfect person to talk about it because uh, he's he's somebody that has championed this movie right from the beginning, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean even recent you know in recent times you know covering the movie and stuff. So I'm so excited. why don't you introduce our guest
0: right now, Jerry?
1: Okay, we have returning guest and uh, great friend of the show, Justin Beam, on to talk about Rob Zombie's Halloween Two. How's it going, man?
2: Doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on. I Appreciate it. It's nice to be back. And <clears throat> this, uh, I, I you know, what you're saying about Halloween 2 and it's sort of complicated history. I think is is on point and makes for really great discussion. So I'm, I'm mm-hmm. thrilled that you guys are getting it some attention. Ooh, what was going on back there? Sorry, I just had a TV thing going up. My <laughs> sorry Apologies. <laughs> sorry. So sorry. No, no, it's it's hey, no to be fun
0: can. because like we're. <laughs> Working against deadline, and I'm like debating in my head: Do I actually edit this episode, or is
2: everyone? Can I come along and fuck it up? (laughs) So you're exactly how it goes. Works
0: in all episode, but that's okay. That is absolutely
1: okay. (laughs) You
2: Um,
0: know
1: what? It is raining outside, and I'm recording my part in a car, so I think we're along for a ride in
3: general.
0: (laughs) So for so, Jared is in a hotel tonight because there are blackouts everywhere in California. So. They are in a hotel. Justin has just done like a five-hour car ride and (laughs) has basically like rushed home so he could be part of this show. Yeah, Yeah. Um, I'm just like hit. I'm I'm hampered by just being me, just like the day-to-day drudgery that is (laughs) basically in my own incompetence and foibles. So everyone is getting like the uh, you
1: know a pretty raw show tonight overall. Well, that that ends. You know. Uh, Like, up until a few days ago, I was really looking forward to this episode, uh, you know, just for the fact that it was one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen still. Mm -hmm. But then I went to see Cats, and I sincerely think, think, without any irony or even joking in my voice, that that was the weirdest damn movie I've ever seen, and I'm strangely in love with it for that reason.
0: Yeah, because you want to go again, and I think that... There needs to be an intervention. I think no. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, I, I want to go again because
1: it. oh, dude, I want to go again because they just announced that they're sending every theater a new version starting tonight with updated special effects, and that's like what? such a yeah, yeah, yeah. the The director was working on it, like I think, up until like a four hours before the premiere, and still wasn't satisfied. So the version that I saw and, and you know the other people that watched it opening week. Like that version's not gonna exist after tonight. They're like wow. like has that been done before other than like the shiny? There were like
0: there were talks I was reading tonight, I think it was I think it was Julie Muncie on either IO9 or A V Club posted an article with some of the um issues with the cut that's in theaters right now. And it was like Judy Dench's um hands can be seen, like you have like one hand that's feline. One um, hand that's not. There were scenes of oh yeah, like yeah. the feet dragging. I think some people were wearing like New Balance sneakers instead of having <laughs> cat feet. Um, so it's like, God. it is like. I mean, what what a weird fucking time. No,
1: but is. honestly, like I'm not going to spend too much time on this because Halloween too, obviously. <laughs> but. Sitting there in the theater watching Cats, it was, like, my wife and I, and I think two other people in the entire theater, like, like the night before it opened. You know, I thought it would be packed. It was just us. And there were so many times where I, I really thought, like, you know, like, I did Acid, like, in 1995, that long ago, and for like for a split second, I was like, maybe I'm not watching this. Maybe it's not as weird as it's in my head. Maybe that's like you know <laughs> residuals because it is just like experiencing like Holy Mountain for the first time. It is
2: so wow. weird. You just compared I'm... cats to Holy Mountain. That's that needs <laughs> okay. to be in the in the show liner notes for this. You know, like Thomas you know, Jodorowsky. You know. Oh my god!
0: <laughs> Growing up, every Christmas Eve, one of my uncles always took like all the kids. To a movie, like he took us to a matinee so that way the parents could get ready for Christmas Day um, and like get all the presents ready and whatnot. That's why I saw like Flash Gordon in theaters that way. Awesome. Uh, like a bunch of, you know, like Rocky Four in theaters that way. Um, I am so tempted to bring. A bunch of the like the cousins, like all the kids, to like a movie Christmas Eve and start oh. that tradition again, and tell them we're seeing Star Wars, but
2: really take them to see cats. Yes, you know, and just like, and then in all the conversation afterwards, just insist that they actually saw Star <laughs> oh, Wars. You know, like interesting. No man, like Taylor Swift was playing Darth Vader. Man, it was, you know. is it true that Taylor Swift actually made new music for this? For this, like oh, they're not even dude. using the the original soundtrack.
1: You know what's crazy is the song that she and uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote for this is such a significant part of the film. Like it's used in like three or four huge parts. and the song is amazing. Uh, but yeah, yeah, brand new song. yeah, that's I guess she said that um, I think it might have been the
0: same uh, the same or a different article where. Her dad, I guess there's a scene where all of them are on catnip. Like they have like an action yeah. scene.
3: Yep. And I
0: guess like her dad was the one that suggested that. Like her dad would just, Ew. she's like, yeah, when I was like younger, my dad used to sit in all my all my meetings and like pitch ideas. I'm like, dad, get the fuck out of here. Um, I think no. Justin's having a shower
2: right now, which. Is, <laughs> um, you know, I've been in, Listen. I've had a long forty eight hours, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I literally I got out of my car, walked inside, and I am in the shower right now. No, I'm not in the shower. <laughs> but you know what that conversation reminds me of? you guys have you seen the movie Heavyweights? Do you remember that movie? Oh yeah, yeah.
0: That's Robert De Niro in in um in
1: uh Sylvester Stallone? No, no. Heavyweights, it's the uh, the, uh,
2: It's kids uh, at a fat camp. Camp. Vince Stewart. So they have this scene. like It's this normal movie and it's actually a a really good, I I like it. It's cute. It's a cute movie. But they have this really bizarre scene that seems out of place and it's almost like um, I don't know, like someone with a very specific fetish stepped in to shoot this sequence because there's a point in the film where all these kids get access to a bunch of snacks Food, yeah, like Twinkies and stuff like that, and there's they're the all to and it's yeah, that's right. And it's like that scene in The Doors where there's that live <laughs> like that outdoor concert and everyone's <laughs> dancing around and there's fire and there's <sighs> naked girls and all this stuff. Well, here is a bunch of like overweight kids just like rubbing. Twinkies all over their faces, and they got cream all over their mouths and their chests, and they're like rubbing into each other, and they're dancing around a campfire. And I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, "This is like a fucking cutscene from Caligula This is <laughs> this does not belong in this movie." And I don't you know how it? we got from cats to there, but there you go. No, it's, well, what's what's funny is this just, just a, in
0: this long way of going around to say that Taylor Swift dad is the one that it was like, let's have a scene where the cats are all high as balls, basically. <laughs>
1: I think, honestly, I think if any of our listeners have like stayed with the song or stayed with the show this long on this episode, then we have them for life. Because in this episode already, we've compared Cats, to Holy Mountain, and Heavyweights, written by Jud Apatow, to The Doors. So, like, I'm I'm all in right now. You are welcome. This is where <laughs> we're at.
0: Merry Christmas, everybody. It's been a good. We've had a good run. Um, so Halloween too. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're here to talk about tonight Halloween 2, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 specifically Justin, um, you know you know Jerry had started out by saying you're someone that had kind of championed this movie for a long time, like what was it that drew you to, to this movie initially I always love starting asking with that, like what was it about this one where you're like, you know, this one is
2: better than its reputation would suggest well it didn't have a reputation when I saw it, I, I, I went on opening day Mm-hmm. And I went, I went to the very first screening on opening day with my then-girlfriend. And it, w- it was kind of an overwhelming experience. I didn't really, because it was such a departure in a lot of ways, that I walked out and I knew I liked it a lot. But I knew I needed to see it again to process it. Mm-hmm. And I went back again. I can't remember if it was that night or if it was the following night. But I went and saw it immediately again. Really? And then I really, and then I really could like tune into it which you kind of have to do with this film. You have Mm -hmm. to like allow yourself to exist in this universe. And I walked out just saying like, this is at this point, I mean, this and devil's rejects are Rob's masterpiece films. Mm -hmm. And in many ways I, I like Halloween two better than devil's rejects because of I mean, for a lot of reasons that I'm sure we're going to explore here over time. But to answer your question about what drew me in was the, the artistry of it, the, I mean, it is so not the kind of movie that a studio was putting out at that time in the United mm-hmm. States. And it is so not what the genre had been at that point and still isn't. I mean, really outside of like independent and foreign stuff. Um, I mean, it's the kind of movie that just it, it it's it has its own voice mm-hmm. and it's bold in the decisions that it makes and it runs with them. And it does a lot of stuff visually that I mean, you could you could turn the sound off and put on some you know you name I mean it, it could be a silent film almost and be just as effective because mm. it's so beautiful from front to back.
0: Where do you stand on
2: 2007's Halloween? I like the first one from him. That I mean it's hard to separate emotion at the time from mm-hmm. like the film itself, but I don't think that they need to be necessarily separated. So I will say at the time I was really excited Halloween was back in theaters because at that point we had we had h2o and then resurrection and it was really just kind of sitting there like dead and once Mm -hmm. again the franchise and so i when i heard there was going to be a a halloween remake i was disappointed because i was like oh why but then when i heard rob was doing it i was on board completely because i knew that he would walk in with Mm -hmm. a vision that would be something different so I, what I really liked about his film is that it took a different approach than the original, which is there's no point to make a movie if you don't, right? And then yeah, yeah. I, I like that he stepped up. he made the – I mean because he, he this is something I've said a million times, and I'm sorry to anybody who's heard me say it before. he he made that move, both of his movies about the monster because just like us, he grew up loving the monster. And mm-hmm. so uh, he he succeeded in that, especially in part two. But you can see a divided director in part one. You can see where he had to pay. He had to have some beats from the original for it to be considered a remake. And, you know, the producers were real heavy in his ear. But then there's also the Rob part of it. And you can see when it sort of steps in and out of that shadow, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And in part two, even though he had infinitely more meddling and fuckery behind the scenes in terms of the production, it is a more it's like a front to back vision of his and. A pure Rob Zombie film. So I like the second one a mm-hmm. lot better than the first one, but I do like the first one fine. Well, what's, what's interesting?
1: Oh no, I was just going to no. say what's what I've always found uh, interesting and very fascinating about the movie, uh, the second one is it almost feels like anything that uh, a lot of people complained about with the first one, not not feeling like you know the original and just complaints in general. It almost seemed like Rob. Not flip them off, but in, in some way, kind of did. It's like, oh, you don't like this about the first one? Well, I'm going to amplify it in the second one. Mm-hmm. Like, there is no question about it that Halloween 2 is 100% Rob's film instead of, you know, a remake of Carpenter's movie that feels a pressure to be Carpenter's movie, but also <laughs> doing his own thing.
0: Yeah, and when we talked about Halloween 4, uh, and Justin, you were on for that show too. Uh, symmetry. Right. Uh, with Jerry, you were fond of saying, "Like, hey, it's a terrible Halloween movie, but it's a great movie."
3: Mm-hmm. And
0: I feel like the same way about Halloween too. Uh, like, it's not a good. I, mean, I think the reason it works is is because it's such a bad Halloween movie. Because of that, it's a great
2: movie. Mm-hmm. If that make I don't know if that or just sense. different. I mean, I don't know that because it. If you break Halloween as a like, is if you the break it down book. to its ex- yeah. yeah, I was mm-hmm. going to say, like, if you break Halloween down to its core elements, this film delivers on all of them.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I would say because it's so, like,
2: even when you look at the
0: original series, when you look at, say, parts four, five, and six, uh, in, H, in H2O to a lesser extent, I'm kind of of the mind that H2O feels removed from the Carpenter universe, where like the first six yeah. films, even when they don't. Necessarily like succeed in some of their elements, they still feel like they're part of that same universe. Like this movie, and we'll go into a lot more detail detail in it as we go on here, but it feels like completely removed from that universe and not beholden to it in any way, shape, or form. And I think it's because of those
2: things that the movie succeeds so well. Well, that's how Rob describes it. That's how, because I did a, Jerry made a little reference to it earlier. I just, earlier this year, remarkably, I still don't know how this happened and neither does Rob. I just, I was just with Rob a few days ago and got him copies of this, but um, I got a huge interview with him in Scream magazine, all about Halloween Two, And it ran over two issues
3: mm-hmm. and it ended
2: up, I mean, the, the editor there as Jerry will attest is incredible. And he let me just run yeah. the ball and it's this long thing, but there's a lot of stories to be told from behind the scenes, but the way that, that um, Rob describes the sort of legacy of his, of his two Halloween entries is that he says to him, it kind of feels like there's the original movies and then his, or his two are kind of off on an Island by themselves. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense when you think about it from that perspective. And I think it also, it challenges the audience to, to, to consider characters they love in in a sort of an alternate universe. So, Mm -hmm which the Halloween franchise has done over and over again. Now people love this with star Wars. People love this with star Trek and all these other things. Right. Why are yeah. we not, why are we not as open to that with this? Cause it's, as I've said a million times, and I'm sorry to about repeating things, but it's like putting a, the Halloween franchise, any franchise, you're putting a model in the middle of the room and you have 11 people standing around it with paintbrushes and an easel and a, and a canvas. And if you were to circle the room, and see how each person was interpreting the model in the middle of the room. They're all going to naturally be different. There's going to be a different take from each of them because otherwise, there's no point to even be creating. And mm-hmm. so, that's the one thing that, it's like, okay, with the Halloween franchise. Well, we've now embraced Halloween three. Great, awesome. Yeah. Now, eh, you know, we've we accepted Michael impregnating his niece. And now <laughs> we've accepted Jamie Lee. And then the the whole beheading, like we've accepted all these things, but this take on Halloween is sacrilegious. Like Rob's, and and I, I even put a post up the other day, the day, I think it was the day after I was, Rob and I were together working on this project together. Um, I put a picture up of us from the, from where we were. And I said now, Oh no, I put up the picture of the parking spaces with our names on them. And I said, now what could Rob and I be up to? And of course like four or five people are like, Ruining another horror film franchise, I would imagine. That's dumb. And I'm just—I'm so fucking over that con—that whole. Right. Thing. That's not even a discussion. It is so narrow-minded, and as I've always said, with any remake, no matter how terrible it is, no matter how much you hate it and despise it, that filmmaker is never going to crawl in your window, grab the Blu-ray of the original off your shelf, and burn it. I mean, yeah. you're always going to have what you had before. So back okay. off.
1: I. You know, for the longest time, I was under the the kind of thought and mentality of, you know, if this wasn't a Halloween movie, if if Halloween 2 wasn't a Halloween movie and it was just its own thing, man, I would really love that movie. And it it was only recently that I thought, like, that's really dumb. That's a dumb way of uh, of, of thinking because if I love it for its own thing, like, why shouldn't I just love it in general? You know what I mean? Yeah, And like, it, it's taken me watching that movie so many times. And what's funny is I even watched it, I think, like a month or two ago and still didn't really get it. And I, I rewatched it this last week. And for some reason, for the first time in, like, however many years, I was just like, you know what? Like, why not just, why not just say this is a really good movie instead of being like, well, this would have been a good movie had it been named
2: something else. It's yeah. just a good movie. Yeah, there's, there, there's a certain element of doom to fail built into any kind of entry in a, in a franchise you know because there, mm-hmm. there's expectation that's it that's intrinsically tied to the experience people if it's if it's a part two or a part 11 i mean people walk in understanding the universe on their terms and so they're, yeah. they're gonna there's gonna be a natural you know judgment there but mm-hmm. what i've always challenged everyone to do in every scenario and i'm not just talking about franchises about anything is like Allow every film, just like every song, to exist unto itself. Imagine if a band made an album and every single song was the same. You'd be like, fuck this band. Yeah. Because you want diversity and then you and you want to allow the artist to, to flex and expand and change and run with it because they're artists. Artists uh-huh. don't artists don't have a timeline on what they create. And art uh-huh. doesn't have any kind of playbook. So we need to stop being so rigid in our outlook on this stuff. And that's why I've never written reviews because I just can't. I, I don't exist in that headspace of casting judgment and then handing it out to people because I have so much respect for everyone's opinion on everything. If people mm-hmm. want to hate something, fine. But um, you know, it's not my job to talk them out of their opinion on something, in other words. Does that make oh, sense? Totally. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's also kind of
1: important and interesting to to talk about the fact that Rob, you know, even though there were naysayers on the first film, you know, myself included, obviously, but even with all these people saying things about it, like he's very, he was very protective over these characters. You know, he was done after the first film done, you know, that was the end. And then, you know, the film was being developed. You know, the, the the writer and directors of Inside came in and were hired to do it. And I remember when that was announced, I was just like, wow, that's that's an interesting choice. You know, and and like I, I would understand Rob's perspective of like, well, you know, in a lot of ways, Halloween was my movie. You know, I, I had to do those Carpenter beats, but that was that was my baby. I can understand why he would want to come back. And it's so interesting that he would come back. And yeah, there was a lot of, you know, meddling and stuff. But with that being said, like, I I do feel and, you know, I even thought this when I wasn't really fond of it. I do feel like Halloween 2 is one of the most auteur driven horror films in like a long time. Like it is. That is not a studio movie whatsoever,
2: I think, yeah, it's, and it would, I I sure think it's
0: really interesting, too, because like you had said, when uh, Morrow and Bastillo w- develop a story that's very very similar to what the end result ended up being overall there were the beats that were going to follow the original Halloween 2 overall, there is um... The ending where the character, the main characters are going to end up dying, including uh, Laurie. Um, but you're going to have all these things that kind of mirror what's going on overall with what Rob Zombie came up with. But he, you know, tweaked it and changed it so it was more his own and more so it kind of followed, you know, kind of the vision he had laid out in his first movie overall. Um, and I think there is a little bit of something to be said for you know, maybe falling on your sword is the wrong word, but, you know, feeling like very protective of the work that you had done before it. And then not wanting someone to come in so quickly to kind of, you know, take away your ownership of it.
2: Mm-hmm. Can we, uh, the, the, talk- the, the, Oh, good. Well, I was going to say that Rob's involvement is a little more complicated than that because he had a, uh, multi-picture deal with mm-hmm. miramax and
3: it's just during the, um, the
2: tyrannosaurus rex era right yeah because his and that was to be the next film it was to follow yeah. halloween with tyrannosaurus rex and that was going to uh, gonna be a boxing movie starring tyler main and mm-hmm. it was this whole thing but then in the midst of all of this development on it they just pulled the plug saying it was going to be too expensive but then they're like but don't forget you still owe us a movie and yeah. um and that's why tyler because he had if you you look at rob's concept art which i know is floating around out there for t-rex you can Mm -hmm. see everything very very clearly and you can see directly why tyler looked the way he did in part two because he rob had him growing out the beard he had him getting getting super ripped and like in shape and um having him grow his hair out and so that was all actually in prep for tyrannosaurus rex which eventually fell apart and um then it came to that, those conversations and when he started seeing the, the stuff that was being kicked around, that's when he made the decision, like you said, to step back into this territory again and with that certain sense of ownership of these characters and do something on his own. I mean, having no idea of the nightmare. I mean, he had some idea, but I mean, really it, it got insane while he was making this movie and hmm. the conditions that he had to make it under are out, just insane, especially when you look at the final outcome and the art. That's present there. I
0: mean, the big thing is that the, what always struck me is like the turnaround time from when he inks the deal to say, all right, I'm going to write and direct this to when it comes out is something like ridiculous. Isn't it like yeah. eight months? Yeah. I mean, it's it's yeah. less than a year. And if I remember correct, he initially thought he'd have an, at least two more months and that he would get another October release. But instead, they make a very curious decision to release this at the end of August, over like Labor Day weekend, if I remember correct, or right near it. Yeah, yeah. no it was, it wasn't it wasn't an October release whatsoever.
3: You so know?
0: It's, like, it's done with yeah. no time whatsoever to really
2: form things. And it was for a long time the the top Labor Day um, box office of all time. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm not sure if that. Still stands, but for, for many, many years at least, mm-hmm. Halloween 2 was the top performing release historically on that date. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes
1: to the film itself, I I, I remember being in the theater uh, and I watched it. And you know, right from that opening sequence, everything from Laurie walking down the street bloody to the corners, you know, in the van with the cow mm-hmm. thing and Everything leading up to the hospital scene, you know, right from the beginning that this is not going to be what you expected whatsoever. And that, that even goes to like not what you were expecting after seeing Rob's first film. Like, right from the beginning, you know, Halloween 2 is going to be like this trip of a movie. You know, like I, I remember sitting there and after the, the corner scene, you know, when Michael gets out, you know, cuts off Richard Drake's head. And then you see the horse and the mom and stuff like it it was almost like a cat's experience again to where I was thinking, like, wait, did I take something like what am I watching is Michael Myers looking at the ghost of his mom and a horse, you know, like it, it, you know, right from the beginning that this is not your typical horror film. And, you know, I'm glad that I finally came around, but it's taken me so long to realize, like kind of like the genius behind those choices. You know, he subverted any expectations that people had going into it.
0: Yeah, I, to me, like that first opening scene, and, and it's funny, is a lot of people who kind of sort of like Halloween 2 point to the first act in the hospital as their favorite part of the movie mm-hmm. overall. And to me, it's like a huge middle finger overall. It's him saying like, if you, you know, you want the same movie over and over again, well, you're not going to get it. And that, yeah. you know, that dream sequence is just like a middle finger to people overall. And it is... I don't know if an Oscar winner has ever been killed more violently.
1: <laughs> the that's, – no, that's what's funny about it is like Halloween, the 2007 one, I mean it was violent as hell. But Halloween 2, Michael doesn't kill people. He just obliterates them. Mm-hmm. Everything from Octavia Spencer's death to, I mean, man, Jeff Daniel Phillips, like his face in that movie. Oh, it's insane. Yeah.
0: It, to me, it's 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 so brutal. Uh, and I think one of the things, Jerry and I, when we talked last week about the original Halloween, I, I we talked about how the violence in Zombies movie didn't always seem to have a point. It seemed to be kind of gratuitous for gratuity's sake, where oh. this one, I, I felt like a, a, a real shift in terms of the tone of the violence that you're not meant to enjoy it. You're not meant to revel in it. You're not meant to cheer it on. At this point, you're really at this point Meant to feel uncomfortable with it. And I think that starts right with Lori getting like hauled into the hospital and how you just get like these real shocking close ups of all her really the battle scars that she's been put yeah. in and just how, you know, like seeing her in a neck brace and seeing her like screaming out like, am I dead? Like that is.
1: You know you what's know, crazy awful. is
0: am I going to die I think is what she screams out over and over and it's like I think it's a completely different tone from that first movie and I think no. it 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 benefits from it
1: totally and I feel like if they had put any like little cheesy subtitle on the film instead of just Halloween 2 that would have been the perfect one because I think Halloween Battle Scars is 100% what Halloween 2 is you know uh it you know it goes in directions that maybe like I'm not super fond of with Laurie, but with that being said, it is very much a look at what happens after a slasher movie, you know, the aftermath of what happens to someone Mm -hmm. when they have to deal with it. And, you know, we'll probably get into the different versions later on, but I, you know, and a lot of like little nitpicks that I I originally had with Halloween 2, I think were kind of gotten rid of with the director's cut of halloween 2 because mm-hmm. there's so much different so much that you could latch on you know there's that scene with the doctor with a uh, margot kidder's character you know in in the theatrical you know it's only been one year since the events of, of the first film but there's like lines like you know well halloween's always a trigger for you or something like that so it mm-hmm. always felt weird but in the director's cut it's been a couple years so it kind of makes sense You know, it's more about Laurie's journey in the director's cut, and instead of this kind of truncated, you know, interesting but somewhat truncated version that Mm -hmm. we saw in theaters.
0: Oh, I completely agree with that. I yeah, I completely agree that having that larger um, gap of time, I think it, it adds more pathos to the movie overall, and it does make you know more sense, you know, in terms of like just how far how far she's really descended since the first movie.
2: And, like, I'm all characters back have, on that, you know? No, go for it. Well, touch, touching back on that opening sequence and then definitely diving into this, the whole, um, like, the survivor-type thing, uh, the, I really think that that opening sequence is just remarkable in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And it offers a lot to audiences and also challenges audiences, too. But it's really, really beautiful the way that it's shot and you know, they have, and it, and they're also putting Michael in a situation that we've never seen him in before, which is in the rain. And this sounds like a small thing, but just like we've always wanted Jason in the snow. We, I mean, Michael has been, I mean, short of being in the water in part five, I mean, essentially it's, he looks, well, I mean the mask, you know, all that stuff, but he's, we are used to seeing Michael a certain way. And yeah. when he's out in the elements for a movie that stands so far, that that travels so far into the realm of dreams and almost like, um, I hate to say fantasy, but for a movie that plays so much in like artistic dream world, Halloween 2 is arguably the most rooted in reality. And that just by the sheer fact of putting Michael in the rain outside in the beginning as he's smashing his way into that booth, you're seeing him. In a position where he's, he could be compromised by the weather, he never has been yeah. before. And you're also seeing him look a different way, and there's, and there's a ferocity when there's, there's a great yeah. shot from inside that shack, out that window, when, when he walks by and looks, and his hair is dripping down in his face. That is, that's my favorite Michael Myers sequence outside of the original film, is all that stuff in the rain mm-hmm. there. It's really great. And then the chase through the hospital, it, it does some art it even plays in some Argento territory there yeah yeah, yeah but but it, it, the brutality you mentioned in setting things up and the way that it's handled, and as we'll talk about this more, it, it is kind of next level, but in, in a way, I think a lot of people miss the fact that it, it's kind of delivering what they've always wanted, because the one thing about audiences is that they love to say they want something new, but when they're handed something new, they don't always respond to it, mm-hmm. and. And this was something genuinely different, and I love that from the very beginning. Like you said, Jerry, you knew that you were on that trip, and, and you. And then it felt unsafe because it was in territory that was completely foreign as a Halloween franchise fan, and it seemed even removed from Rob's first film. And that lack of security, I think, is really important to a movie that goes the directions this one does, because you don't want a film. You, you. I mean. There would be no point that the, a lot of the power would be lost if you could guess the next beat, and I would argue mm-hmm. no one sitting in theaters seeing Halloween two for the first time was able to guess mm-hmm. any of the upcoming beats.
1: Totally, and I, it's always it's also interesting that most slasher films, if they do address what happened to the you know final girl, uh, you know u- usually the sequel is focused on her and her PTSD and her trauma. But what's so interesting about Halloween two? Like, it shows the aftermath on everyone. You know, I I think it's interesting that Rob kept the character of Annie alive, you know, when all of us expected her to die, kind of like Carpenter's, to kind of give her, especially in the director's cut, an arc
2: that is almost as tragic, if not more, than Laurie's. And seeing, I mean, giving Sheriff Brackett one of the most powerful moments in all of horror. But certainly one of the most powerful moments in this franchise when he discovers her toward the end of the film. Mm -hmm. I mean, Brad Doroth in that scene is devastating. it, It is. And you just feel it. You wear it when you're seeing it. And the way Rob lets it play out. And that's the whole point here. Is it does what horror is terrible at doing. And that's showing how people exist after the fact of something horrendous happening like this. I mean, any small element of most of these films would be destructive to anyone, let alone, you know, the, the scale on which Michael Myers has been murdering people for years, whatever it might be. I mean, I love the fact that the entire town, there's a mythology built around him then too. And you also have Loomis. He's transitioned in this film. So yeah. it's not he, he's not static either, which is nice. I mean, it, it's really challenging the audience. And I think that's that can be very important and very powerful. Well, it
1: it doesn't only address PTSD or trauma too. It addresses a lot of things that survivors go through, like resentment, you know, Annie and Lori are very close in the first film. And I mean, there's such resentment and not hatred, but sometimes a little between the two because of what happened. You know, I, I feel like Lori blames herself for what happened. So there's that aggression. And I feel like Annie, in some ways she does too, you know, and it's, like it's so interesting to see that when I mean, you know, for non fans of Rob's work, or just I mean, a lot of people in general, you wouldn't necessarily expect that from a film by Rob. I mean, I do. I mean, I, I think the quiet moments are what impressed me the most with Three from Hell, you know, and I, I think that maybe he doesn't get enough credit for taking these choices of showing those emotional beats in films that maybe, you know, he does deserve more credit for that.
0: And you mentioned resentment, and I think there's the resentment where it goes both ways, but you also get the sense that Laurie, to a certain extent, is comparing what the two of them lost and resenting, almost feeling like a charity case. Like, she is still, not only did she have to cope with the you know, physical and emotional trauma of what she suffered, but she's also lost her only family. Like she had to, you know, so she's also still mourning the loss of her parents and, you know, waking up in a different home than she had grown up in is a reminder of that every single day. I kind of want to circle back to just the very, very beginning of the movie. I love the opening shots of just Lori holding the gun And walking quietly through a completely deserted Haddonfield where the streets are empty, it's pouring rain, because without any dialogue, without anything except just watching her just hobble down these lonely stretches of road, you get a complete sense of just, there's no bouncing back from this. Totally. Um, and, and it's I, so I, different from what we normally see in this kind of film where, you know, we covered Scream. I love the Scream movies. And we covered, talked a little bit about, you know, what Sydney Prescott goes through. But yeah. by and large, aside from some minor cosmetic things overall and some minor changes, like she's not terribly affected by the events of the movie. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, fair to say, and I think that's the case in a lot of slasher movies where the final characters return. There's some superficial dealings with in terms of 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 trauma and what the blowback is going to be And here. I think very early on, you get the feeling that, like, it's it's set up. So there's no coming back from this.
1: No, totally. And I, I think what makes that scene that you're talking about so powerful is not just the imagery, but the lack of sound. And I think that that's one of the most impressive things about this film is even though it's very brutal at times, you know, most times, I think the choice to make those moments almost silent, like it makes the film that much, like maybe not scary, but kind of panic inducing. You know, Lori is kind of fucked up beyond repair. You know, all that stuff, but instead of doing these really dramatic, string filled, you know, musical cues while she's walking, it's silent and it gives you, as a viewer, a chance to kind of feel that, you know? And I, I think the lack of sound kind of helps set that tone in that scene, especially.
0: You know, after watching this movie again this week in preparation for the episode, I kind of come to a realization that I missed maybe the first t- few times I watched. Watched it. I get the feeling watching this movie that the director's point of view is that Michael Myers is very much the wronged party in the Halloween movies overall, that he is the one um, that the audience should be sympathizing with. And we talked a little bit about that when we discussed Halloween. Um, this movie, to me, the character of Michael Myers really echoes the, char- the character of the monster in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein.
1: That's really interesting.
0: Yeah, because when I'm watching it, one of the and this is a, a cosmetic thing, but he, I know that Rob has said he replaced uh, Dag Ferrick because he thought the actor had kind of aged out a little bit of the role when they were doing the flashback scene in the hospital. Uh huh. I would make the argument that at least at some level, whether aware or unaware of it, looking at the uh, actor Chase Wright in that scene. He's a cuter kid. I mean, it sounds it's, it's like a really weird thing, and this is... He just, like... Uh, Dave Farrick is perfect in his role as that little young Michael Myers, and he's made up to look very creepy. When I look at Chase Wright, he's kind of a handsome smile. You see, like, Michael Myers, like, smiling and talking to his mom and to Sherry Moon Zombie in that scene. Mm-hmm. You don't see that in any... Of Rob Zombie's Halloween, he's never really smiling or really laughing at all. He all, and even when he is,
2: it's it's creepy. This but is just yeah. like a very clear-eyed. That's also bright- kind of the point, though. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the point of that scene because when his mom is there, mm-hmm. and when I mean the that's his sunshine. That's the way. No, I would that's a
0: good it. thing. I'm not arguing that's a bad thing. I I, yeah. I I'm not arguing at all that that's a bad thing. I, I think that I do agree that that's the point of it overall, and you want to have it. Have him look like look at this bright, cheerful little guy here. Um, but I would argue that like it posits that Loomis is really the the monster of the movie or overall, and even to the point that everyone in the movie that dies, almost with a couple of exceptions, everyone in the movie that's a victim in this movie almost deserves it in one way or another. You have
1: yeah, the there's whole very normal- few people. Yeah, there's very few people in Halloween two that that die you know, undeservedly. And I'm not saying anyone deserves to die, but a lot of Michael's victims in the second one are kind of people that kind of were antagonistic. Correct. And You know, speak, speaking on what you're talking about, the moments between Michael and his mom that were kind of, you know, uh, endearing in the in Rob's first film, they still felt very off-kilter. And I think one of the interesting things in Halloween 2, kind of on what you're speaking on, is that actor you it is easy to see that actor as young michael and feel for him and mm-hmm. w- that's another thing that i've always found fascinating about halloween 2 and kind of speaking on where you know it's more about the monster michael kind of comes off for the first time in the entire series for me michael comes off very lonely in halloween yes. 2 mm-hmm. and i think that that's such an interesting choice to give this monster Kind of this loneliness and kind of like tragedy to him that's never been in a single Halloween film prior.
2: Well, and and this goes back to my point on this film being rooted in reality, because Mm -hmm. what the one of the other things that this movie does is it spends real time with him. Yeah. In most of these movies, the it's exposition explaining how he gets from point A to B. Or it's maybe just one scene, like the gas station in park four or something like that. Like his his survival is never made a point of feature in any of the other films. Whereas this is the first time and really in the genre, maybe outside of Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. um, No, I can't say that totally. But it's one of the few times where you you're seeing how he would live under the radar as a, a seven foot. Serial killer who should be instantly recognizable by anybody after the events of the first film, of course, he's going to be transient. How do transients survive? They wear layers and layers of clothing. Would they be unkempt? Of course they would. So that's why he has the beard and the long hair. Where would they go? He can't be in town because he'll be seen there. So he sort of lives on the fringes. He's out in the fields and, you know, rurally and things like that. And it's, the discussions with his mom that eventually lead him back to all of this stuff in Haddonfield, but I love that this movie gives us the rare view of one of these characters just sort of living and surviving, and so as a result of that, you do have a lot more screen time with him, like with the, the him having even a portion of his face. do you guys remember what a big deal that was when it was really yeah because I think it might have been Fango. That, had a, that did an article on it, and they said, we are in a room right now full of a bunch of little Michael Myers and Michael's face is exposed, or something like that. And yeah. the internet blew up because they're all like, they're taking the mask off, Michael, blah, 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 blah. Well, he does have the mask off because it's completely impractical to walk around every fucking day wearing right. a full head mask if you want to live. And in Rob's yeah. universe, Rob, uh, Michael Myers is human.
1: Totally. And I, I think it's also interesting that, uh, you know, maybe it's explored a little more in the director's cut, but I think it's very interesting that the character of Michael, you know, it's not just, you know, some of my favorite Halloween films are are like this, too. But in the, pri- in the past ones, you know, Michael's kind of a POV. Michael's kind of like the shark from Jaws, you know, to quote Buster Rhymes, <laughs> you know, going after his victim, oh, where this yeah. movie... This movie, Michael, is a is very much a character that you get to experience, to follow. And a lot of his anger in this movie comes from the feeling of feeling betrayed by Loomis right. You know the, Loomis, I mean, obviously Michael is the villain, but to me, Loomis comes off more monstrous more of an antagonist than Michael does. Mm-hmm. Loomis has benefited he's benefited so much. From the tragedy of you know Michael's family and Lori, you know, and I feel like that is more than Laurie, but I think Loomis is kind of the, the force that brings Michael's anger in this movie. He feels betrayed. Well, it's even, I mean, because you get the the
0: shots. Where, you know, Michael is speaking to his ghost mom, and, and you hear her say, like, everyone is profiting off us. Everyone's profiting, profiting off our tragedy. Um, it's not just Loomis that's doing it, you know, in a very big way, but also, like, the Red Rabbit strip club. You have, like, Daniel Roebuck's character, uh, you know, Lou Martini, um You know, he has Michael's mother plastered all over the place. And it's like the mother of the angel of death. Like he's profiting off of the tragedy as well overall. Um, And to me, Even the character of Annie's death, like you had mentioned, uh, Justin, the character, uh, you mentioned the Frankenstein of the Bride of Frankenstein, and I couldn't help but think of the character of the monster in Shelley's novel, who we grow to sympathize with, basically killing off Victor Frankenstein's friends and family one by one, and that Annie dies in this movie basically is payback to Sheriff Brackett, saying, you're the one that took away my sister. You took away Boo from me. She is the only thing I ever loved, and if you're going to remove the only thing I ever loved, then I'm going to destroy something you love, too. Um, And I think there's something very much that parallels Frankenstein in that way. Uh, The hillbillies that attack Michael, they attack Michael, and he, you could say what he's doing is retaliation or self-defense, although it's amplified quite a little bit. Um, but I think very much the point of view of this movie is that Michael is the one you're supposed to sympathize with at the end.
1: I don't know. Well, there's I, no good. Oh, go ahead. Jerry, I'm sorry. No, I, I was just going to say that, you know, Justin mentioned that this film is the one mostly rooted in reality. And what the last time I watched Halloween two this week it reminded me of, oh man, I can't remember the man's story, like the real man's name, but there was a movie, and this is another weird comparison in this episode. There was a film that came out a couple years ago called Aftermath with Arnold Schwarzenegger, where he plays uh, a loving father and husband, and this kind of careless air control worker wasn't paying attention, and the plane crashed with Schwarzenegger's family on it. And he felt he felt like this man took something from him. You know, this man had no remorse. The you know, no remorse, nothing in real life, the real story. The guy had no remorse, nothing. So the father just wanted to feel you know, wanted to return that loss. So he hunted down this air traffic controller that took his family from him and killed him basically in front of his family. And it kind it's kind of the same thing in Halloween too like you're saying. I feel like most of Michael's actions are led it's with either By either uh, retaliation or, like I said, betrayal for feeling like Loomis basically profited over the blood of, you know, all these people, you know, his family especially, you know, And, and Michael did kill his sister and all those things. He's very much a villain, but at the same time, in Rob's films, Michael's a human being and goes through these complex kind of feelings like everyone else does, and no
2: other Halloween film prior kind of showed us that. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, and and you had mentioned sympathizing with Michael, and I would challenge that by saying, I don't, I I think it's more getting a glimpse into Michael's world as opposed to sympathizing with him. And in this story, his, you know, he's being, it's not just him. It's also his, his mom and that deep connection with her and how she's kind of helping guide him to the people who had done her wrong too. And so the, the, the rabbit in red isn't just about the exploitation, it's also like she—I mean, she maybe hated working there, and and she was—I mean, it's not just him. In other words, it's mm-hmm. it's a larger story to be told there, and so it's like in Frankenstein. It's almost like you can't when he throws the girl in the lake, and he doesn't know. He doesn't know. He just thinks that's how you play. He saw her throw the pedal in, so he threw her in, and. Can, how do you fault that guy because he he just is and sees things how he does and it's the same thing in Rob Halloween 2 where he it it might seem based on our history of being conditioned by film tropes that he is a sympathetic character in this or should be viewed as a sympathetic character but really I think there's a greater story happening here where he's just He's almost uh, he, I'm almost working off of instinct from front to back in this, from survival to getting rid of the people that he gets rid of. And it is all rooted in the complexity, Jerry, that you just mentioned that I think is arguably the root of what makes this whole thing so fascinating.
1: What's crazy is, you know, I feel like even though it's directed by the same person, I feel like the character of Michael is a complete 180 from the 2007 film. I mean, like, like – Mike and I discussed on the previous episode, our feelings are, or I mean, I'm pretty sure Mike said this, so I mean, don't quote me. Maybe it's just my feelings, but Michael kind of knows what the hell he's doing in 2007. It's very calculated, you know? It it seems like he's 100%, you know, he knows exactly what he's doing, everything from killing the bully to, you know, Ronnie and all that other stuff. Whereas Halloween 2, like, I mean, like you're saying, it feels like he's led by something bigger than just. You know what he wants to do, and I feel like. But maybe that he was sex- in the first one too. maybe he was, but I, I feel like as, Possibly, an, as but a, it as a come filmmaker, across. exactly that's what I'm saying.
3: Right. You know, that might
1: have been Rob's intention, but I feel like Rob 100 percent is successful in doing that in this film. Maybe where, maybe not so much in the first film, and I think that's what makes two kind of stand out a lot for me is that. You know, maybe Rob doesn't get enough credit for a kind of. I mean, a lot of people say his writing is where it suffers. You know, where I, I think, like I said, Three from Hell, I mean, I think it's so well written, you know? And I, I think that his writing is very just on point and good in Halloween, too, in, in ways that, like, even from Halloween, you know, his first film to his second film, I feel like there's such growth being displayed.
0: I think the biggest thing it benefits from is it dials back a lot of the white trash stuff. And, you know, this, it can be tough to watch at times with, Uh, Lori's character being like really over the top and screaming and yelling. But I think it's understandable in this movie, given the history. So I'm more forgiving of it. And I think it dials back a lot of the kind of trashier elements of the first movie overall. Uh, And I think you guys have both said this one is rooted in a more reality. Like to me, this is a more recognizable reality overall like this is something that doesn't feel like completely exaggerated um and i can appreciate that and i think that kind of pulls me into the movie more
1: well totally and you know for the longest time i've I've spent years i mean even in the last episode or so you know briefly talking about laurie and halloween 2 how i just don't get how after all that stuff you know she would just be this kind of hard to like kind of you know Charles Manson obsessy kind of thing and just rewatching it this last week is just like I kind of felt I mean I don't know maybe getting older I see things differently but I kind of feel like who am I to say how someone would react to you know right. their whole exactly. life getting changed like that you know how I reacted right. to my own trauma growing up is completely different than the next person right. you know so I mean I do think that it it, it, it is interesting that he went that direction with her
0: And I love, one of the things I do love is that I I love seeing Lori in a black flag shirt in this. (laughs) To relate it a little bit to myself, when I was 19, my dad passed. And we were pretty close overall. Like, I know, I had 19 good years with him overall. And I know a lot of people have, like, 40 or 50 shitty years with their parents sometimes. I had 19 good ones with mine. So yay for me. Uh, but it was a really hard time. And uh-huh. I had just been starting to get into like punk and hardcore music in a year or two before. And when he passed, I completely dived into it. And I remember basically just listening to nothing but like Husker du, the descendants and black flag on a loop all for different reasons. And over time, like dropping out of school and just spending every waking moment at punk clubs overall, like, you know, shaving my head completely bald. Um, Just like sleeping in alleyways some nights because I would miss a train back to wherever I was living, like couch surfing and like having a really hard go of it for a while. And, you know, for me, I would say like punk rock saved my life. And I know that's a Mm -hmm. a cliche phrase, but it really did. So Mm -hmm. a small part of me really Obviously, didn't go through anything like what the characters go through in here, but you know, to me, one of the the one cathartic and joyous moments of the film are when you know Laurie and this kind of new family of friends that she's adopted with Bray Grant's character um, throw on um, kick MC out five. the jams, yeah, 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 yeah. MC Five and kick out the jams, and <laughs> that to me was an immediately recognizable moment. And I just love that so much. Even if the dude from WKRP in Cincinnati is kind of a creeper in that role, but that's all right.
2: Yeah. I mean, again, everybody is, you can, you can buy into it because they're relatable people. Mm -hmm. And because all of the conflict, the filmmakers conflict about, you know, carrying forward elements from the original are gone now. It's now, it, it can be whatever the playing field needs to be for this story. And in uh-huh. this story, and, and I like what you say, Jerry, about her trauma. Like, everyone is so completely different with anything like that. I mean, there's th- no one can cast judgment on her performance in that. Um, I mean, uh-huh. I would, yeah, I uh, just, so I've I've always been really bothered by the suggestion, usually by men, that uh, that it's an unrealistic portrayal of how Laurie should be or would be because i mean you don't know you don't know right and so yeah
0: what do we think of the contrast though between how Laurie is depicted versus uh, Annie and Daniel Harris is much quieter more kind of insular one day at a time portrayal of survival overall like she's i i want to say she's agoraphobic i don't think annie ever leaves the home in this i could be wrong but i don't remember ever leaving like the bracket home and she's obviously still like very damaged from everything that goes on but is handling it in a much different way almost taking on like she almost becomes a mother to both her her father um sheriff bracken and obviously to laurie as well
1: well, I feel like I mean, she kind of has to though. I mean, how many times you know, if we're in relationships or I mean, siblings, you you know, marriages, anything where you're both going through such hard times and you both have such different ways to deal with it, mm-hmm. even though you're hurting, even though Annie's hurting, she very much sees this friend who used to have everything together fall apart. You know, she kind of is forced to be this mother Uh, kind of, you know, Mother Hen to her. And I, I, you know, my issues with Laurie Strode initially with this movie, like, you know, that's whatever. But I can't stress enough how great I think Daniel Harris is in this movie. Mm -hmm. Because it kind of shows what I was speaking on, how everyone deals with trauma in their own way. And I love how both characters are flipped upside down to who they were in the first film. You know, Annie was that kind of braggadocious, you know, you know, what the fuck are you looking at? My daddy's a sheriff kind of, you know, person. Mm-hmm. And Lori was, you know, she was a little rebellious in the first film, but she was very much, you know, more soft spoken and that kind of stuff. Whereas in Halloween 2, because of what happened, they're very much the opposite. And it's very interesting to see. It's also interesting to see, I think, uh Brad Durf as Loomis, or not Loomis, I mean Brackett, uh Brad Brad Durf as Brackett. And his performance is so good. I mean, yeah, that epic scene where he finds Annie's body. But also, I mean, he is fighting tooth and nail just to keep those girls okay. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that one of the most endearing scenes in the whole series is that kind of like pizza scene between mm-hmm. all three of them. You know, where like Brackett is fighting so hard just to like help them and be there for him, But he's kind of losing and he knows it, you know?
0: Yeah, he knows what it's really like an uphill climb that he's just not he's just not up to task for as much mm-hmm. as he would love and to. And he
2: be. also probably he probably also carries guilt from mm-hmm. yeah. the events of of the first film too and uh, and that's something that you're not usually allowed to see either is I mean emotion in law enforcement in films unless that's like the heart of the story is very very rare. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And so I I appreciate the fact that he's sympathetic here and that we get that dinner table scene and I get where Annie would be because she, in many ways, had the worst experience with the first film. Obviously, yeah. she, she wasn't. I mean, her murder is what we all assumed had happened. She mm-hmm. was brutalized in that movie. And so how she's going to respond to it is very much her own path. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I could see her being sick of this being a threat in her life, you know, being burned out on dealing with Laurie and and her constant sort of reminders about what happened because she's trying to move on too. And that's the hard thing. Like when a couple loses a, you know, a child or something Mm -hmm. that you, you are having individual experiences, but there's also a together experience and Mm -hmm. those are going to be three very different things. And the complexity, you know, getting a chance to see that here is I think a really remarkable thing because the dynamics would naturally change. Uh Of course, that's going to happen. And these aren't caricatures. And I mean, the feelings as somebody who's had extreme stress at certain points in my life and gone through some horrible things. I mean, of course, not attempted murder. But um, when she's in the when Lori's in the, the therapy session and she's just screaming, you know, about and when she's in the car and she has this great revelation about Michael and her relationship to Michael in this one, she's beating on the steering wheel with the book. And because it's this huge thing that she had no idea has always been there in her life. I have been in that moment. I have been in that very moment. And I know how it crushed me and how I'm Mm -hmm. continuing to work through everything that all of the ripples that have come since then. So, yeah.
0: I think, too, there's that moment at the end of the pizza scene that Jerry referenced to where when Lori like runs from the table to throw up, you know, Brackett looks at Annie and she's like, Yep, I'm going. I always go and it's a little line, but in that line you get just this complete picture of like what life has been like for the past two years. Like Annie has been the one that's whole held Lori's hair back when she's thrown up from stress and fear. She's been the one to comfort her. She's been the one to tell her that, you know, it's going to be all right. She's opened up her home to her. She's given up all this space to her overall. So their friendship, you know, looks so much different than it was. And you get this feeling that deep down, Annie is asking, like, who's there to hold me? Who's there to pick me up when I need it? Who's there to tell me it's going to be all right? You know, that that she wasn't getting you know, that same comfort overall. And there's a little bit of, you know, when she says, like, I'm over your shit, like, you know, you weren't the only person that was hurt that night. And you get a feeling it's the first time that she's ever expressed that feeling. And I don't think she could ever really start healing until she was able to express that.
2: And it's so like, like, uh, Mm -hmm. sorry, I was, If I can draw a thread back to Ryan's oh, yeah. first film, that this isn't the first time. I mean, all of this isn't new for him in his Halloween universe. Because don't forget about Judith Myers in the first movie, who in another rarity in horror, outside of the third creature from the Black Lagoon film, we have a main character committing suicide on screen. Mm-hmm. And it's the result of what she's been through and her being completely overwhelmed, which is not an unreasonable response when your child has done what he did mm-hmm. and she's dealing with all she is. The baby's screaming in the room. She has all this like her world is wrapped up in chaos and she does that to herself, which is not only taking once again the Halloween mythology into, into a new realm, but it's also it's allowing humans to to be fallible and allowing us the fragility that we all ultimately do have Mm -hmm. instead of just being movie characters that can jump across buildings and be shot a hundred times and then get back up. You know what I mean?
1: And it shows, it shows how different uh, people are, you know, some people work on themselves when they go through a lot, some people fold. And the thing with Sherry, especially in the, the first film with killing herself, I mean, can you imagine that character, like the, what they would have to live with knowing that their son murdered basically the entire family, so to speak, you know, like that weight, like that is one of that is one of the things I do like about that movie is that scene, you know, like it, it shows the kind of like pain in her eyes, knowing that
2: she has to live with this, you know, and the way he shoots it is so poignant. And I remember sitting in the theater on opening night, or on opening day, rather, watching that film the first time. And when that gunshot went off and you hear the baby scream, it was dead silence in the theater. Because in the first movie, that's the point where you knew that, that this is going to be... I mean, obviously, quite a bit happened before then with Halloween night and everything that happened with Michael. But that's the moment of new that really let you know that you weren't safe in this world. And then from that point forward, that was one of the, I think, that the sort of most important elements of the first one, to just put audience, to, to disarm the audience, in a way.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That And uh, I, I think it's interesting how Rob
1: flipped a lot of characters uh, from the original series. I mean, it's it's inter- it's fun, especially with Halloween two to think about how he took, you know, while I, I don't necessarily like the direction with this character, it is interesting that he took the character who, you know, for all intents and purposes, was the savior in the first six movies and made made him the most unlikable character in both of his films with Loomis. I mean, Loomis in Halloween 2, like, like I said, I've always found him to be more of an antagonist than Michael in the movie. Like up until the end, you know, where he kind of realizes, whoa, what have I done? You know, the whole movie, I mean, he's trying to sleep with reporters – You know, he's and it's interesting. There's that one scene that almost feels like Rob is talking to all of his critics where they have that picture of Loomis kind of in the Donald Pleasant's trench coat, you know, and he he throws a fit saying, you know, that's the old Loomis. I'm the new Loomis, you know, and all that Mm. kind of stuff. Yeah, that one's a bit on the nose. Yeah. uh, You know, I, I do think it's it's interesting that that character became kind of
2: in a lot of ways almost a secondary villain. Oh, absolutely. And that that began in his first film, too, because if you remember Loomis's conversations with young Michael well, not young Michael, but like uh, adult, 18 year old, whatever, 19 year old Michael was centered around the fact that he's like, I can't do anything else for you. He's a doctor who had given up. He had thrown in Mm -hmm. the towel and he was just there that day to tell Michael that he was done. And so it wasn't as though he was a hero in that. And also, I would argue historically in the Halloween franchise, and I know I said this so many times, too. Loomis is the, at once, greatest opportunity and greatest missed opportunity in the entire franchise because we spend so little time getting to know him. And this is when we were on the Halloween 4 episode, you guys. We, we talked about the, the scene in the truck when he smiles for maybe the, fr- the only time in the entire franchise outside of scaring the kid at the bush in the original. And you, and you get a little glimpse into his mind in him meeting the reverend sort of, he's seeing a little, little bit of a mirror of himself and he sees the joy in this man. And I think he sort of pulls from that. Loomis was always, he, he, he wasn't a hero because he never really saved the day. He was really, I mean, selfish and brutal to children in part four and five, especially in part five, in part six, he's kind of ineffective in part one and two, especially one, he's just tailing Michael. He's not ultimately, I mean, until the very, very end of the film, which is the same thing in the original Halloween too. Loomis is, he's, for as important as we have made him over time, and for a lot of people saying the yin to the yang, Michael to Loomis. You think about how little he actually does in the franchise. And so Rob integrates that here, and he... Modeled him in the second film after Vincent Bugliosi, yes. yeah, who, who wrote the the book about uh, the Manson murders called Helter, An Helter Skelter. Skelter. And he and and much has been made of him, really making everything in the wake of that book about himself. And he was known for that anyway. And and so these people, I mean, Loomis, for all intents, by the time Hel- Rob's Halloween Two comes around, he is he doesn't know Michael's out there. He assumes he's probably dead. Who knows? But he's kind of moving on. He's no longer practicing. And so now he's moved into the realm of celebrity. Well, we can certainly as horror fans understand that because how many times do you go to conventions and pay 30 bucks for an autograph from someone who hasn't made a movie in 40 years? They've yeah. moved into the celebrity realm outside of the acting realm. This is just a natural transition. And as a guy who had already thrown in the towel in part one on a, on a guy that he could have arguably probably continued to work with and maybe made progress at Ooh. some point with, he... he uh, <laughs> We're gonna he, have he, some words. He uh, <laughs> he. Then you know, by the time part two comes around, this isn't even relevant to his world outside of a money-making venture. So, so I get it. I get it, and I'm yeah. glad it's not the same old Loomis.
0: So I made this argument when we, uh, when Nat and I um, talked about part one. One of the biggest problems I had with uh, Dr. Loomis in the original series is he had no business treating Michael Myers for that long as a doctor, as a psychiatrist, if he was having no effect and if his treatments were having no effect on him. You know, the line I spent like eight years, you know, looking at, you know, trying to get through to him and then another seven years trying to keep the block up forever. It's like he, ethically speaking, is a practicing counselor. If you're having, if you, the treatment you're doing is having no effect, you are ethically bound to find somebody else to treat that person at that Got point. Um, so I, you know, when you say like, well, he's, he could have gotten through to him. Maybe. I, I, what I loved about part one, and I'm actually working on a piece about this right now, is I love Loomis's portrayal in part one up to and including the bit where he has that goodbye with Michael. And he says, I'm sorry. I wish I could treat you. I wish that I could fix this, but I just can't. And you could see, and you have never seen this in any of the other Halloween movies. You've never seen Loomis actually try to treat Michael. You are not privy to any of the uh, treatments that he used, what sort of modalities, uh, nothing at all. You never got that. Any... Real attempt to see them establish any sort of rapport with one another, and I think in like Zombie's original Halloween movie, you do see the character of Michael and Loomis establish a pretty good rapport initially mm-hmm. with one another, and over withdraws. time, before Michael withdraws when he realizes he's never getting out, uh, and you can see Loomis's heart break in each subsequent scene a little more and a little more until he realizes, like, I cannot help you. And I can tell you that as a counselor, I've had that conversation with people where I'm like, I wish I could help you, but what you're going through is so much outside of the realm of what I'm able to do that I would be doing you more harm than good to continue to see you. What we are going to do is find you someone that can be better suited for you.
1: Well, he's so far from that scene that you mentioned in the first film where you could see his heart kind of breaking when in he this realizes part. that yes. he's so far from that. And I think a good example is that is at the kind of uh, event that he's speaking at mm-hmm. where it's, it's not even talking about his history with Michael. I mean, he starts making like little like ad lib jokes with about the Lewis twist. Yes. It's, you know, and it's, it's just like, it's so exploitative, like mm-hmm. the, like I think it's a fun flip side to Donald Pleasant's character because I mean, you know, me personally, I'm a I love that character. And mm-hmm. uh I, I think in the original series there is that moment where Loomis realizes that he completely fucked up the whole mm-hmm. thing. And it, it's the moment at the end of Halloween five when Loomis had the heart attack. You know, he looks at Michael and there's a look of there's a look of all these years I've failed you, you know? Mm-hmm. And and I think that's interesting, I and I I think one of the things that makes Halloween two work is having Loomis be that despicable, because I mean like I said earlier I feel like that is a driving factor a driving force into Michael coming home and not only giving revenge but kind of coming to terms with how exploited he feels. You know I do feel like the Michael and Halloween two you know and. 2007 as well but this is the first time zombies films especially these are the first times you get to feel what michael's feeling you know and i'm not you know i love halloween five with a passion but one lonely teardrop coming down don shank's face isn't the same as the whole you know the whole journey that we go with on michael Mm -hmm. with halloween two
0: agree No, agree. Um, And you mentioned the moment where he's at the convention, also just the way he treats his assistant, where he's like, you know, if I want your opinion, I'll beat it out of you. It's like it's a completely unrecognizable character from the first movie, and it's it's an odd choice, but I think – I think it. I think it strengthens my argument that Loomis is really meant to be the villain here. Even at the end, when he you know makes the choice to go to the shack where there's the standoff, he's completely ineffectual. He's in over his head. He's ineffectual, um, and he and it's all about him. Yes, it's all about what he wants to do. Uh, and he goes into that shack, and within ten seconds, he's like, "Nope, this is way too much crazy. I have no idea how to deal with this."
1: No, like Bracket and all the cops, you know, they're they're doing their best to not only control the situation but get everyone out of it safe. You know, Laurie and that, and mm-hmm. what what Loomis does, it's very selfish, and it might come off heroic to some, but disregarding Bracket asking him to not go in there. I think is is very selfish and actually put I mean, it could put Laurie and everyone in danger more than it. it, You know, they already were because it adds another roadblock to them trying to get Michael, you know, and I I feel like that speaks so that just that action at the end speaks so much on the Loomis in Halloween, too.
0: It does. No, it absolutely. It really does. And you can see, you know, he it's definitively killed in this one like he wasn't in the <laughs> first in the first movie I thought you know in the in the theatrical cut his head is pretty much crushed but he somehow comes back in this one and i, I think at the end of this movie it's interesting because uh, i think Malika Cod had told you know Rob like basically do whatever you want and if that means killing the creature then kill him which his dad always had a um aversion to and that was a hard fast rule like you're not allowed to kill michael to the point where he had a backup plan for michael getting his head chopped off at the end of h2o he's like nope just a flesh wound we can get over this um here you know it's like if you want to kill michael then go ahead and, and do so and the end of this movie sees your three main characters michael Lori, and and Loomis all dead with really nowhere to go once this movie ends. Like, I don't know where you could have gone with this movie after this one or this mm-hmm. franchise
1: after this. Well, it's interesting is they kind, they kind of tried. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it, it should have been the end of that kind of set of stories, you know. Uh, but, I mean, it's I like funny that, that they. Though. Oh, no, me too. A hundred percent. I like the finality of it. I, I think it's funny that you know they even tried to make a third one to this ser- this exact series. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's 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 interesting.
0: What do we think of the white horse stuff?
1: You know, I I, I like it, but at the same time, I also think it speaks on how like off the cuff, uh, you know, Rob can be kind of like bouncing off the walls, like mm-hmm. oh, I see a white horse while we're driving to set. Let right. me incorporate that. You know, and I think that that's one of the things that I love a lot about uh, Lords of Salem, you know, is there's so many decisions in that film, especially where it's just kind of like, you know what, maybe we don't have the time or the budget to do this. Or maybe mm-hmm. I like this, what this, you know, what we're doing this much more. Let's go this direction. And it's it's interesting because the white horse is so prevalent in the film, but it, it was almost like, a, you know, oh, there's a white horse. I think
2: I'll incorporate that into the right. script. But yeah, I do but it, think it, it works for it. It does because th- this movie is about relationships. Yeah, and it's and, and it's about a connection with with youth, with like his with his past, his past being his mother, his past being comfort at home, his sister, and all of that. So we all have things like my son carries around this little stuffed dog, Bella, and mm-hmm. that's his. That's like his connection to comfort. And I know when I was a kid, I had a blanket that I used to carry around and a whole bunch of the little tag on the corner of it. And um, and when I've been in, in the hospital at any point in my life, I always had something with me that connected me with home or the people I loved or whatever it might be. This this isn't something that very rarely happens in movies. People very rarely because the stories don't usually expand to consider the small elements like that, whereas mm. this one does. And I love that it becomes a key visual element in this movie because it makes it distinctive. It is something completely different and completely unexpected. But he's still seeing the world in some ways through child's eyes. And he's still t- he's holding on to the very... T- when he was hospitalized, if you're in a psych ward, you're not going to be able to have much of anything. If you're in a psychiatric hospital or under any kind of care, the tables can't be lifted off the ground. You know, you, there's like... Because they're trying to prevent suicide and self-harm every way they can. And so you may have one or two things that you can keep that are your own. Everything mm-hmm. else is in storage downstairs and will be taken out when you leave. This makes sense that Michael would have been allowed something. And for her, for his mom to give him that in an, in an attempt to bring some sort of normalcy to his world while he was in there. And Sherry is so wonderful in that scene because you can see the pain inside of her in part two. When she goes to visit Michael at the hospital, because he's saying, Can I just come home? And she's, you know, that I, God, I wish you could. I so, and I wish you could understand how big this thing is, but you're just a kid. And handing him this makes all the sense in the world. His doctor, I mean, he's in this sterile universe where he's just a patient and they may feign interest in him ultimately, but you know how the doctor patient relationship is, especially in a hospital like that. It's not heart to heart. And so he needs his mom and he needs to feel her presence. And that horse represents that. And so when he comes out, when he sort of reemerges as, as the, the sort of monster again, He's. he's st- why would he stop holding on to the, the conduit mm-hmm. to his one place of comfort that he had when all this shit went haywire in the first place? I think yeah. in, in many ways it should have been there in the first film as well, and I wish it would
0: have
3: been. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think, too, like the white horse is there in a lot of ways, from a narrative standpoint, to give voice to Michael's inner thoughts in a way that none of the other movies had done. And I think one of the strengths of it overall is it shows that – despite the fact that you have Tyler Maine, who's this, like, six-foot, ten-inch monster of a man, just ginormous, and you, you can lose sight of the fact that developmentally, Michael is still that ten-year-old boy, that he's never really moved past that, and that his way of thinking is this very rigid, very childlike way of thinking, and that ten-year-old is trapped inside a body of a 25-year-old man that is, like, just too large and too monstrous for this world.
1: Well, it kind of goes with what you were saying about revenge, you know, Loomis kind of or not Loomis, I don't know, keep seeing Loomis. bracket you know, took this away from me, so I'm gonna take this away from him. If Michael is kind of stunted in that younger uh mindset, you know, that makes even more sense with that. Because I mean, as children, you know, we are kind of not bratty like that, but we are kind of vindictive like that. Mm-hmm. You take my toy, I'm gonna take your toy. Yeah, You know, and even as teenagers, you know, this person broke my heart. So obviously I'm going to be a a dick to them now. Right. You know what I mean? Like there's that kind of almost immaturity to it that is kind of addressed in Halloween too. you know, Michael is very much he might be a Hulk, you know, visually, but he's still very much that kid who misses his mom, you know, and that might sound silly to say in a
2: Halloween movie, but it's the truth, you know. And that, scene, mm-hmm. and that scene where he's on the sidewalk walking and, he, and that little kid bumps into him. And it's a little bit of levity where the kid says, are you a giant?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And he looks and, and Michael looks down at him. I mean, Michael's looking at a normal kid out doing normal Halloween stuff. And that's what gives him pause in that moment. He, he doesn't annihilate the kid. He's not Jason Voorhees. Right. Yeah. He, it, it's just a moment because he's not out to be a killing machine. He's not necessarily driven by any one specific thing. And I, that this is what I'm talking about, where where it is so rooted in the reality of what his world would be like.
3: Mm -hmm. Agree. Totally.
2: Yep. Totally agree
0: with that. Yeah. It's not. You know, I, one of my favorite scenes in the 2018 Halloween is the, that kind of like single take of Michael making his way home to yeah. home and going on that spree. And to me, it's very much like a gleeful kid in a candy store. Um, I don't know if anyone remembers the show Bozo the Clown when they were growing yeah, up. Yeah. But they used to to have this – one of the contests was you, as a kid, you would get like a shopping cart and you would have like one minute to go through like a Toys R Us. And anything you could get off the shelf and get over the line is what you would win. And that's what that scene is like in 2018's Halloween. It's like, I'm just going to go nuts right now. And this is not that movie, and I think it's – you know, I love the 2018 Halloween. I think it's great. I think that th- this portrayal of Michael right here, it's, it really works for me in the, in the 2009 Halloween 2. It really works for me for that reason. It's be- like you said, like, he not only he's, not only do you want to say spares the kid, I don't think it ever crosses his mind to even hurt the kid.
1: Of course mm-hmm. not. Right. You no, know, totally. And it also speaks on what Justin said earlier about each film existing on its own. You know, I loved the 2018 mm-hmm. film with a passion. I mean, it's my second favorite Halloween film. But with that being said, I do like that Halloween 2, like you said, is definitely not that movie. I I like the fact that two very different movies can exist on their own and be very different takes on the same character. I find it very fascinating and I, you know, I'm happy to say that, you know, I'm converted in that sense. Like it, it's cool to find kind of an appreciation in a movie that maybe I just wasn't ready to kind of digest. And I think that it has so much going on for it in a positive way, in an entertaining way. It has a lot of good statements about you know trauma and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, it, and I
2: love how it just shows the aftermath of everything. It, mm-hmm. It's great. Let me so, ask you guys a question here because I, I, I don't I don't I'm not sure if you already have notes to head into this realm. But what do you guys think bothers people so much about this movie, and why do you think it's so polarizing? Okay, so I actually I was just going to go into that a little bit. Um,
0: I said really early in the podcast how it doesn't feel like a Halloween movie. Um, I think part of it is it suffers because a lot of people, even though the original Halloween or original Rob Zombie Halloween – did very well at the box office. I don't think a lot of people love that movie. I think that they came out of it with a pretty sour taste in their mouth, and this one's going to suffer by comparison. I think the hospital scene being a dream sequence and kind of being an, an FU to fans overall might sour people a little bit. Jerry, you had said, all right, all those things you don't like about my movie, uh, I'm going to amplify those things right now. Um Michael is not in his mask for long stretches of this movie, and that is so different from anything we've – because, you know, to your point, Justin, he really shouldn't be because it would look ridiculous to see him just kind of wandering around in a Will Shatner mask, Um, and I don't think people like hobo
1: Michael Myers – well, that and I, I think it kind of goes with any fandom in general. I mean, I think we saw that with uh, The Last Jedi with the Star Wars series. Mm-hmm. You know, it was so different that a lot of people were just like, nope, I hate it with a passion. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's what Halloween 2 was for this series. You know, they didn't seeing Michael Myers get karate kicked by Buster Rhymes wasn't as offensive to them as Michael not being in his mask in Halloween 2, which I find mm-hmm. incredibly odd. Right. You know, or uh, a senior citizen Colt, you know, driving Michael Myers around after he impregnated Jamie wasn't as weird as, you know, a white horse, which I well, find is incredibly be, weird. To be fair, this movie had a much bigger audience
0: than, say, Halloween 6 did. No, like but people I mean, just, just stop s- going to see those movies. Where you know, H Halloween, yep. Rob Zombies, Halloween, and this one. Like a lot of people watch these
1: movies. No, I, I don't mean like box office wise. I mean like as far as reception. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's it's not just lately that there's been that kind of resurgence of Halloween mm-hmm. Six fans. I mean, that's been going on for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, I I feel like that they're a lot more dismissive of a movie that goes for broke as far as being completely different than a movie that maybe is just silly. But I think that's in part because a lot more people are,
0: now catching up with Halloween Six, like as opposed to it being ignored upon release to a large extent. No, that's, that's true. That's where true. a lot of people saw this and had you know initial opinions on it overall. I think that that's a guess on my part. Well, I could also, be
1: completely wrong. I also think that you know by Halloween Six, I mean it's been it was kind of diminishing diminishing by that point as far as right. quality in in their eyes. This movie it was a more of a, it was a more of a slap to the face mm-hmm. of those kind of toxic fandoms because. the first Halloween made so much money and so many people went to see it, whether or not they liked it or, you know, reception, a lot of people went to see it and there, you know, I knew a lot of fans of that movie, a lot of them actually, you know, and when they go see a movie, they expected to be a follow-up of that movie. You know, like I said, it's directed by the same person, but it's Mm -hmm. very much a different film. You know, it's, it's like, it it would be kind of like, And I'm not going to talk about this movie so much because I've gotten enough hate mail over this movie. But it's like if you watch the original Black Christmas and then you watch the new one back to back, you know, if the new one was a sequel to the original, not a remake like it is, can you imagine, like, how pissed off people would be even more than they Mm -hmm. already are about that movie? Like, it's not even the same movie.
0: Right. They're completely different things that share the same name. What, why do you think, Justin? Like, what is it? What would you say the reaction, why would you say people have had such a visceral negative reaction to this movie Well, we're here? Like I've ranked this one as high as number two on, uh, in terms of like where it sits in the franchise for me.
2: Yeah, it's my number two as well. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I think that people don't like to be confronted with uncomfortable things. And I think a lot of horror is very safe and you can feel very removed when Jason's folding someone in half or when Freddy's in the dream world. And I think that this movie, it, it puts the audience in the uncomfortable position of being in a therapy session. It puts them with the sheriff when he discovers that his daughter's been murdered. You're, with, you're spending time with Michael in a puzzling universe that in his head that there's no way we can comprehend because it's not for us to understand. So these are all very challenging things for an audience. And for people who, who are used to a, you know, somewhat of a model in the Halloween franchise... Rob smashed that to bits, especially with Halloween too. And that's why so many people, I think, resent this. And in my years when I was working with the franchise and going to appearances and conventions and whatever else it might be, all anyone ever bitched and moaned about was the white horse. And, it, and I, I can't believe that, it's, that it really boils down to that for so many people because this movie is doing so much more than that. And if that's just the case, I would challenge them to go and revisit it with new eyes if they haven't watched it in a while, to reconsider it as a whole mm-hmm. instead of just focusing on that one element. And also mm-hmm. maybe think about, is that one element really that offensive? Why does this bother you so much? And mm-hmm. I, is, it, is it simply because it's different? Is it because it's you don't normally watch films that move into the realm of fantasy outside of like a Star Wars type thing, which is still rooted in within a reality of its own, right? I think right. that we're it, it's just such new territory for a and I hate to use this word for it but like a brand. It is such new territory and so fresh and unusual for people that I think and I hate to use say again expectation but it's almost like it's so not what anybody thought they would be walking mm-hmm. into the theater to see that then they walk out with a resentment. Now, why they're so vocal about that, I think what I saw was bandwagoning because initially I didn't, I mean, I don't remember talking to people and having a lot of people going, I hate this movie right? because it did well when it came out, it opened at like number two, I think. And it went on to do almost $40 million. I mean, for a movie like this, that costs like what, 10 or 12 or something like that. And um, so it's not like it's a failure and the studio, they, they completely mishandled the, the promotion on it. And so I don't think audiences knew what to expect walking into it necessarily. So it was an unusual situation where they were being handed something that's part of a larger mythology that takes that mythology and spins it on its head. And Mm -hmm. it does it in a way that is not conventional at all in terms of almost any of the storytelling that's happening in it. And that's why I think this movie really could stand on its own.
3: mm -hmm.
2: That And I also feel like fans of
1: a certain franchise will never be happy no matter what. I mean, you know, we keep coming back to star Wars here and there, but I mean, force awakens came out and people were complaining about how it's fan service. And it, you know, it's basically blah, blah, blah. It has too much of the original stuff. Last Jedi comes out and it's like, Oh my God, it's so different. I hate it. The new one comes out and it's just like, well, it has too much of the old stuff. It's like, especially with horror, you know, when it comes to like Halloween, uh, you know, Friday thirteenth. A lot of this stuff. I I feel like maybe a lot of fans they want a certain thing, but when they get it, you know, they want something else. It's just like it's it's either like I said, it's either too close or too far away. And I feel like a lot of people don't really give things a chance to, like Justin said, kind of you know, it, it be its own thing. This movie also came at the tail end of the Mm -hmm.
0: remake phase, too, though. Like, Mm -hmm. It came out in 2009, and I think this and then 2010's Nightmare on Elm Street really kind of put a nail in the coffin for big-budget classic remakes that we had kind of sat through. It's also a lot of the horror of the early 2000s and mid-2000s was this really visceral, in-your-face really grimy horror. Um mm-hmm. and I think that was a reaction to 9/11, the Afghanistan war, the Iraq war. 2009 you have like a new you know not to get too political but you do have a new administration in office that was elected on the idea of hope and change. You see a shift in horror where like now the saw movies are going to go away and you start seeing more Of a trend towards like paranormal type movies. I mean, let's not forget that about two months after Halloween 2 comes out, paranormal activity hits theaters and on a budget of basically a Prius makes over a $100 million. Mm Mm-hmm. No, totally. I think think maybe by this time fans are a little bit burned out on. I mean, because this is a tough movie to get through in terms of like just the sheer Mm -hmm. carnage of it overall. And I think as much as horror fans don't want to admit, like sometimes gore and bloodshed can be overwhelming. That there might be a little bit of reaction to that as too, just based on where the next trend in horror went over the next few years. I mean, now we're you know you have Paranormal Activity in 2011, you have Insidious, you have like the Conjuring universe right around the corner. All of those, I would say, are more old
1: school scares as opposed
0: to like blood and guts.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And a lot of it, I mean, I like a lot of those movies, you know, a so, lot. Oh, you can love both. But Call with that, with, with that, no, yeah, but what I'm saying, like, with that being said, uh, you know, I can understand that a lot of those movies, I mean, the truth is a lot of them are product, you know, one movie successful, let's make another, that movie successful, mm-hmm. let's make another, and all that stuff. So when a film like Halloween 2 comes out right before, right at the cusp of those breaking out, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a movie that and it might be a product to a studio but it's definitely not a product to its filmmaker you know mm-hmm. like halloween 2 is an art film there's no arguing about it this is a movie that should have been shown in an art theater grimy art theater in like pasadena or is something you know this is not like a this is not like a regal theaters movie you know and i i feel like it came out maybe if it, I think if Halloween 2 had come out maybe a, a, a couple years earlier, maybe it would have been received a little bit better. But I think, like you said, it was right before all that other stuff hit. And when that stuff hit, it hit hard, and it changed the landscape of what people were watching and what they were wanting. Right.
3: Right.
0: I love it. Absolutely love it. Gentlemen, the hour is getting late, at least on my end over here. Um, what else do we have to add? For... I, I think I think I'm good
1: I think I'm good yeah, I, I enjoyed
0: this very much great episode yeah. uh, I adore this movie I would I would encourage anyone that hasn't gone back and watched it in a while give it a second chance. Um, I really enjoy this a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. It's To me, it's got a little bit of nostalgic value. It's the first thing I wrote on for a site that I ran for close to a decade, um, and I loved
1: it back then, and I appreciate more about it now. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I'm, I'm happy I came around, too.
0: Justin, what are you working yeah. on, Mr. Beam? What do you have coming up? What's in the pipeline for you?
2: The Big Trouble in Little China disc just came out, and mm-hmm. I'm right now, let me think of what's been announced. I always struggle with this. Um, oh, I'm working on um, April Fool's Day. That's been announced. I'm working on mm-hmm. Monsters Go Home, or Monster Go Home, rather. Working on, I mean, I'm working on a bunch of titles, but I can't honestly remember the ones that have, that have been mm-hmm. announced so far. But definitely uh, lots of stuff for Screen Factory.
1: You have Body Bags and Let's Scare Jessica to Death coming out pretty soon, too, right?
2: Oh, Body Parts. Yeah, Body Parts. Oh, yeah, Body Parts, not Body Bags. Body parts. Yeah, yeah, the Eric Eric Red film, that's right. And then Let's Scare Jessica to Death. I think they're coming up either later this month or next month in Mm -hmm. terms of their release. But both of those are in queue. And then, I I mean, there's some stuff that I'm working on that I cannot wait for it to be announced. Mm -hmm. There's some really great titles that we're heading into 2020 with. And so people just really stay tuned to Shout Factory's social media and everything to keep up on that stuff. But um, that's that's really been my world It's just keeping it, keeping the ball rolling with the production company and keeping these discs moving.
0: And I got to say, I never owned like a Shout Factory or Scream Factory release until you came on the show. It was always one of those things where I'm like, eh, I'm not going to spend 25 bucks on a disc. Come on. And I'm like, you know what? I need to. Oh, now I'm pretty much only buying the stuff you guys are putting out. Oh. We've, we've got the. I just got the Howling Steelbook. Oh, and, well, yes. rest. Um, the Blob. Um, oh, good. The Thing version you guys released. And. There may or may not be a copy of They Live Under the Christmas Tree waiting for me right now, so, <laughs> which I'm really excited about. Um, Thank you. And w- who's coming up on the Justin Beam Radio Hour soon?
2: Oh, the next episode I am actually going to start editing tomorrow. I have Michael Felsher's on it with me.
3: Oh, nice.
2: I, and, and then I have, and we go for quite a while, and from Red Shirt Pictures, who is one of the, the contemporary godfathers of, of special features, and loved that conversation. And then I have a couple other people that are in queue coming up, but I have yet to record them, so I'm not going to jinx them by saying. Okay. That. <laughs> but thank you for asking. I appreciate that. No problem. And where can folks find you online? Uh, on all social media, just look my name up. My last name is B E A H M, and mm-hmm. also at JustinBeam.com, where I try to post things. You know, keep it current with, that, mm-hmm. with uh, news and releases and stuff like that. Excellent. So, yeah.
0: Well, so all of our you know, thank you again for coming on. Like I always learn so much, and just enjoy yeah. talking to you so much to the point where I'm ready to just give up my seat and let you and Jerry run the show, and I'll just, <laughs> I'll just cheerlead from the sidelines like Flavor Flav. Um, <laughs> no way. Well, you know. Thank you,
2: thank you for inviting me back. I always appreciate oh, it. I'm it's always, always a
0: pleasure. Guys. It is thank always you. a pleasure, Jerry. Are we ready to do this again tomorrow night to do Muppets Christmas Carol? Oh my god, I think so. I think I'm ready.
1: You know, I think it will be I, a
3: shorter. <laughs> um,
1: such a, such, this is our the Muppets Christmas Carol will be our Halloween two episode. Uh-huh. You know, where it's so just like out there.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I love I, that. I I've love watched that. that three times already this season, and my daughter and I have had the soundtrack on repeat over and over. Um, I've been reading articles on it from Paul Williams yeah. and Michael Caine. It's it's mm-hmm. my 1A favorite Christmas movie. i probably just a hair behind It's a Wonderful Life, which we just did our family viewing of that tonight, and I always... Oh, at the end of the movie, when Harry raises his glass and says to George Bailey, the richest man in town, like, I break down like a baby and just have to, like, leave the room. Like, I'm not crying. There's nothing in my eyes here. <laughs> you go to bed. You're grounded. Christmas is canceled. That's it uh, great.
1: It's a classic. So,
0: no, it was. I Yeah. So I think next year, hopefully, that'll win. Uh, that'll win. People ask, like, why wasn't Christmas vacation part of the poll that we did? Um, I would direct everybody to Saturday Night Sleepovers, who just covered that um, for a couple hours on their show, and they do such an incredible job of covering everything about that movie and really the history of National Lampoon, uh, and the vacation series that it's such a, if you're looking for a amazing podcast on, uh, National Lampoon's Christmas vacation, go to, uh, just seek out Saturday night sleepovers because they do an incredible job and there's no way I would have been able to follow up the work they already did so definitely thanks. seek that out if you need another Christmas show to listen to um, and I think that's it everyone thank you so much for tuning in follow us over at pod and pendulum over on Twitter thank you so much to our listeners uh, Justin thank you Jerry thank you any final words well oh, thanks for listening all right Merry Christmas everybody happy Hanukkah and however you celebrate the holiday do it with people you love. Have a great week. I'm getting all shmoopy. Have a great bye bye. <laughs> all right. I am gonna
2: Smoopy.